invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and in just a moment or two, we're going to read beginning verse 1. And welcome here and welcome out there. It's always nice to be a part of both. And, you know, as you think about it, we certainly thank God for the privilege. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. The one line there above, uh, verse 13, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always Trust, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as, as I preach and as we listen, we give to you our burdens, our needs, our weakness, our fears, and our sin. And we ask that for Jesus' sake, you will please give us your strength, your grace, your forgiveness, and your love. Please then glorify yourself and heal the brokenhearted as your word is preached. Amen. I wish someone would have taken me by the hand at the beginning of my career and said, look. Those are the words of a gentleman named Leland Riken. He was a professor of English for some 50 years, and he's the author of the book, which I've read three times now, 40 Favorite Hymns. And he wrote that statement at the end of his book to say that he, over those 50 years, is finally learning how hymns are just as much poetry as they are songs. And the whole thing startled him. So he wrote, I wish someone would have taken me by the hand at the beginning of my career somewhat 50 years ago and said, look. And every time I come to this chapter, understanding the, the totality of it, the, the context of it, the need of it, and understanding me, I say to myself, I wish someone would have taken me by the hand at the beginning of my Christian pilgrimage and every day since and said, look, Look, you feel that way, don't you? I mean, when you hear these verses read, does anyone say, oh, oh, I know that? Do you say, that's easy? 
Been there, done that? Of course not. There's only one person in the long history of this world who's mastered these verses. And for me, preaching this chapter is right in line with what Leon Morris said many, many, many years ago. He said, it's like clumsy hands having touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. Here, what is true of all Scripture is true in special measure that no comment can be adequate enough for such a great thing. In other words, we might be better off just meditating on these verses for 35 minutes than hearing me. And so the antagonist might say, you know, love, love, that's the trouble with things, too much love. People need to be more responsible and they need to be confronted and I made it, they should. If they do wrong, we'll pay up and toughen up and, and man up. But you see, that was some of the stuff that was happening in the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 13, it seems sweet, but in the context of the entire book, it is a sobering warning against straying from the gospel. Paul wants them to know that this spiritual gift of love is, you see it there above verse, uh, verse 1, the most excellent way. And whenever it happens, it is supernatural because it's a gift, super above our common nature. And it's a picture of the gospel. So this is God's love for us in Christ uh, defined. So it's the gospel. He's a holy God. We are sinners. We are condemned. We are worthy of death. We are not righteous. We are not good. We cannot change ourselves. But this is what God has done in Christ. This is love. God took on flesh, lived perfectly, suffered horribly, did what we did not, would not, and could not do. And he willingly died a death, which by rights should have been ours. But he rose from the dead, conquered death. He's at the right hand of God. He's our king, our savior, our friend. And he continually stands before God on our behalf. And that is love. So yes, we are saved by works. It's just that it's Jesus's works and not ours. And the characteristics of love, which we read here, is exactly how God loves you. And therefore, the Christian knows we can only love everyone, everyone this way, because God loves us this way. I wish someone would have taken me by the hand at the beginning of my Christian pilgrimage and every day since and said, look, look. Well, God is extending his hand to us this morning. And I am reaching for it. And I bet you are too. Four points. If you have a worship folder, you'll see it there. The context of love, the kind of love, the cause of love, and the content of love. All right, the context of love, right? Every verse, every chapter is written into a context. And so as you look at this, you probably know that this is read a lot at weddings. I mean, it makes sense. It's a beautiful day, a beautiful verse. However, Paul didn't write this just for that. You see, the context of the church in Corinth makes chapter 13 very, very telling. The church there, listen carefully, the church there, like every church now, has some bad qualities. And if that wasn't true, then grace would not be necessary. And so first, Paul wants to warn them to know chapter 13 is in contrast to what they actually are like. So what are they like? Well, if you have a Bible, verse 4, they're lacking in patience and humility. Verse 5, they dishonor each other. They have these long lists of wrongs done to them by others. They keep it, and they will not throw it away. And so 
by describing the nature of love, he's confronting them without telling them directly, you're not loving this way. Second, in writing this, he has in mind uh, the characteristics of their immaturity. So this is a little bit more than that. For example, here's one, 1 Corinthians 3. Paul tells the church there, I was unable to talk to you as spiritual people. I had to talk to you as unspiritual, babies in the Christian life. I had to feed you, as it were, milk and not meat. You were unable to digest meat in those days, and you still can't. For you are still worldly, unspiritual. Okay, why, Paul? And this is what he says. All the time, there is jealousy, distrust, squabbling, quarreling, arguing among you, showing that you're living just as if you are people of the world. In other words, you're living like you're unconverted. Or chapter 6, they have a big problem with lawsuits and lust. Paul says six times in that chapter, do you not know, do you not know, do you not know? In other words, you should know, but you don't know. So the church was lively. They had a dynamic quality. They were filled with gifts, pretty sure of itself. And Paul says, the reality is you're filled with boasters and you're filled with babies. Thirdly, (laughs) Paul will say in chapter 14 that these spiritual gifts are there to build up the church. But the Corinthians were tearing down the church. And of course, love is quite the opposite. Love builds up. And the final part, and this might be the most telling, the final part of the context here is Paul lays down in love, describing here the qualities which cannot be defeated. The qualities which are undefeatable. You understand this love is invincible. Do you see verse 8? Agape o depte pipto. That's the, the Greek for love never fails. Okay, I don't know what to do. We've all been there. I don't know what to do. Everything's a blur. Love never fails. I have to make a choice. I'm kind of stuck right now. Uh, love never fails. I am so mad at them. I'm up against it. Love never fails. We, we sing it, your love, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me, your love. I mean, has God ever failed you? No. Why? He loves you. That's the context of love. It was a broken church. It needed lots of help, parts of it stuffy, parts of it immature, but it was still Christ's church. And therefore, she will be loved. Love is what she needed. Love is what she'll get. Love is what she needs to extend. Second point, the kind of love. So what kind of love is Paul writing on here, right? Is this love like I love my puppy, a hot dog, which I haven't had a hot dog in in eight months, and I was thinking about it, no kidding, and my wife bought hot dogs, like that symbiotic, you know, thing we got going on there, without even asking. Anyway, toast, I don't know. So the Greek language, as you know, has a few different words for love. Here's one, storge. Storge is affection for someone, something, or some place. Soft slippers, favorite shirt, old jokes, good books, a coffee house, favorite place. Park Point right now for me. Favorite lake, favorite person, favorite movie, favorite song. Storge, affection for those things. And then there is philo love. And philo love is essentially friendship. This is loving the people that we like. 
So we see a person that we like, and you say to yourself, here they come, they're here, right? And you could just talk away for hours. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite dessert? State song. And maybe if you're me, you try to hold hands with them, and you take a long walk, and off you go, and you can do that all day. All day, because they're your friend. Storge, affection, philo, friendship. And then there's eros. Eros. This is C.S. Lewis. It is the love that is least thought about, but most felt. It will be completely destroyed as destroying the mountain view when you locate it in the retina or by asking too many questions. It is sexual and not. In one high jump, it has overleaped the massive wall of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself self-sacrificing, tossed aside personal happiness as a trivality, and plants the interest, and here it is, of just one person in the center of our being. Eros seeks one and only one. One person. It's good. A long time ago, George Jones said, come to me, baby. I'm a one-woman man. Eros. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, how do I love you? Let me count the ways, and I can do it all day. Finally, there's agape, which you probably know is the word that Paul uses here. Agape is more than affection. It's more than friendship. It's more than romantic love. Agape is understanding and extending the redemptive goodwill towards all people. It is overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Nothing in return. It is grace. It is the love of God in Christ taking hold of the human heart and unleashing self-sacrificing, self-abnegating, blood-dripping Calvary love, expecting nothing in return. It is not performance-based. And when it comes to us, it comes either in the force of electric shock or other times it comes as a sweet, sweet breeze. And sometimes when it comes out of us, it flows out like water. And other times, at least in my experience, I'm talking about me, when my flesh fights this love, it comes out kicking and screaming. But by golly, it gets to its chosen target. And when we love this way, you see verse 7, always, 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 we love everyone. We love our brothers and sisters this way. We love our enemies this way. We love those people who disappoint us this way. Not because we simply like them and not because we have to, but because God loves us this way. Number one, the context of love. It's a kind of tough place, but it's still Jesus' church. The kind of love, well, this is it. It's, it's agape love. This is, this is always. This is... I can't stop loving you. Three, the the cause of this love, and here I'm going to be brief, but it's always good to remember ourselves. If there's no crucifixion, if there's no resurrection, and there's no ascension of Jesus Christ, then there would be no gift of love. There'd be no way we could do this. In other words, Christ. In love, Christ obeys the Father. In love, he goes to the cross. He's buried. He's raised. He, he, in time, is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he pours out gifts to the church to build her up in the most holy faith, as Jude would say. All right. Finally, then, the content of love. And 
We'll spend the rest of our time today, and then, Lord willing, the next time we'll finish it up. So, so first of all, love, Paul tells us, is, is foundational, and it is supreme. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at the opening verses there, the first three verses. You see him, if we can't, you know, if we can speak like angels or, or prophesy, if we know everything, or we have faith so large that we can say, move mountain and the mountain goes, we can make great sacrifice. Some translations, you know, let our bodies burn. Paul says it doesn't matter. Love is the most important thing because he tells us you can do all those things, which is incredible. We can do all those things and still not love. All right, so I want, want you to please listen to a gentleman named David Koresh. If you, know, you don't know him, a long time ago, he was a cult leader. He led a lot of his followers to, to their death in Waco, Texas. And this is what he said preaching to his people one day. If you want, I don't think you should call that preaching. We'll just say he was talking to them. This is what he says. Are you really a Christian? The apostles of old used to heal the sick and raise the dead. They were spirit-filled. What about you? Do you do these things today? How can these stupid churches talk about the Spirit when they don't even do what the apostles did 2,000 years ago? So they sin against the Holy Spirit, commit the unpardonable sin because they claim to be led by the Spirit when they are led by the devil. Okay, so just that's interesting, right? How, how do you know you are a Christian, he asked. He answers, well, you can heal the sick and you can raise the dead. Now, listen, we know that's like off, but it's all external stuff, right? You understand? It's all external. Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, you know, we're going to go right to our heart. Paul says here, if you think that it's all externals, that is the most fatal mistake a person can make. Okay, so you can do miracles. You can move mountains. You can have these spectacular spiritual experiences. You know, your ooh, knowledge coming out of your ears. And if you give all your money and all your body to others and you do not have love, look at the Bible, verse 1, your noise. Verse 2, you are nothing. Verse 3, you gain nothing. In other words, you don't have God because, because God is love. And the, the fatal mistake is, is to think that we can, one, you know, we can start judging others in our mind right now when I say that, well, they're not loving, and I'm, they're not. Don't do that. And the other fatal mistake is to think that power and knowledge and, you know, spiritual goosebumps and, and works are more important and more necessary than love. Because, see, we can do all those externals and still not have love, and maybe God is the only one in, in the room that knows it. And that would have shocked the Corinthians. Because they were very power-happy people. Uh, Chapter 3, they loved to judge others, power move. Chapter 11, they loved to exclude others, power move. Chapter 4, they loved to boast about themselves and their spirituality to hurt Paul, another power move. They craved spiritual ecstatic experiences, chapter 14. They divided into groups, chapter 3, chapter 11. But Paul says, all the power in the world all the spiritual experiences in the world, all the knowledge in the world is not greater than love. I came across this quote from Ernest Hemingway. There is nothing noble in being superior than your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. And I would just add, in Christ. So for the first three verses, he tells us 
what we know. Great faith, big brain, religious experience. You know, you get invited everywhere because you've had that experience. You could serve people like the second coming of Mother Teresa and not have love. It would be nothing. Love is foundational. Love is supreme because God is love. Second, love is not a list. That's very important and it'd be way too easy. If you look at this as a list so that, you know, you can check off the boxes. So, okay, patience, check, and, and kindness, check. Please don't do that. Paul used to be a legalist, but he was converted. He's not a legalist. He's not giving us a checklist. The Corinthians, by the way, they would have loved that. Loved ones, he has not written. And if you just look at your Bible, please, you should be patient. You should be kind. You should envy. Not like that. But what does he say? What is he saying? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. In other words, He's not giving us a high holy checklist and then say to us, okay, church, if we all just try a little harder, won't things be better? I mean, you can do that. We can all try a little harder, can't we? No, the Bible is brutally realistic. It is all evangelistic. It is all gospel. He says love is patient love is kind. So he's confronting us with love. In other words, he's saying look into the mirror of love. So this is wonderful. It's personal and it's private. And you have to have this collision course with love. You have to be encountered with this love. You need to see your need to be changed by the man of love, Jesus Christ. And at that point, we'll be able to become loving. And we can embody the love of God. And he gives us his power to love as he loves. That's the way Paul is laying it out. And if you think about it, it's so darn spectacular. It's gospel. Because the first thing that has to happen when you read that... You have to be judged by the very definition of love. And you read it, and, and you say, at least I do, you say, oh, my. I mean, look at verse 7. Anyone always protecting, always trusting, anyone always hoping, always persevering? You see, confronted by that. The second thing, and this can be a great thing, is this brings you to a place where you know you're going to have to get some help. You're going to have to be embraced by the man of love. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me, Jesus. Yes, of course I will, Jesus says. I love you. And then when you, will, when you are able to take his love and then translate that love that way into loving others, then you know. Then you know. You see... The standard that confronted the church in Corinth confronts all of us today. So we're judged by it. And we find ourselves, I think, primarily reacting to that three different ways. Two are wrong. One is right. Wrong. You read that and go, nailed it. Did it again. That's wrong. Number two, well, you know what? I'm about 70% here. And after the sermon, I'm gunning for 85%. And you never think how that those 15% or the 30% of the times when you weren't loving, how, how the infinite worth of that person was just encringed on because we did not love them God's way. So it's one or 1,000. What does it matter? They have infinite worth. Those two are wrong. This one is right. God, have mercy on me. A sinner, please help me. Please help me. And again, 
At that point, when you say those things, Christian or not, you are ready to be embraced by the man of love, Jesus Christ, and then we will be able to let his love just flow through our life, having a lifestyle of love. So in other words, it's confession before transformation. That's a good biblical principle. You remember the, one, the woman with, this, with the, the super expensive alabaster jar of perfume, and she breaks it over the, her thing, and she pours it on Jesus' feet? Remember the guy in the room? If, he, if you knew that she was a sinner, then you would have no part of her performance. Jesus said, Luke chapter 7, verse 7, she knows she was a sinner. That's why she's washing my feet. And then Jesus tells us, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You see? She knows. So then when Paul says, for example, love does not dishonor others or keeps a record of wrong, he's giving us a picture of of pure love. Again, verse 7, always, 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 never fails, always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Always, okay, meaning what? Listen carefully. If our love ever gives up on a person, it is because that person has failed to give us something or bring us something that we wanted. So if they don't give you respect or affection or approval or gratitude or submission or their ear, or they're just too weak so they can't give you what you want, we give up on them. When we stop loving people because they are unlovable, bad, we are not loving the way God loves us in Christ, as it's written here. And you would only give up on a person, now think with me, you would only give up on a person when what you really wanted was not them, but what they did or did not do or what they could bring or could not bring you. Now, I'm going to say that again. You would only give up on a person when what you really wanted was not them, but what they did or what they did not give you or bring to you or could do for you. But if you love them, just as they are, you would never give up. You would never give up. Therefore, here Paul is showing us true love doesn't love a person by what they give or do or don't do, but just loves the person, period. Just loves the person. You simply love them as they are. Can I just be intimate with you? Over Christmas holiday, I wrote a couple of texts to people that I love, and I told them, thank you. Thank you for not ever letting me worry about performing in your presence. Thank you for loving me just as I am. Do you know how free that is, I told them? Verse 7, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Never fail. So the definition of love is not wanting the joy, respect, or the happiness a person brings to us, but simply wanting their joy and their happiness. Because the person themselves are already your joy and already your happiness, whether they get things right or not. Now, loved ones, is that not the gospel? Is that not the gospel? Nothing in my hands I bring. Here is love, vast as the ocean, as we say, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, the, his, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. We brought nothing into our salvation except our sin, the sin which drove Jesus to the cross. And yet, what do we read in the Bible? Romans 5.10, when we were God's enemies, 
He loved us in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saving his enemies. Romans 4, God justifies the wicked. True love does not love the love a person gives you, but simply the person themselves. Luke 6, 32, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So what we do here before we ever get to the, the, the definition there is we sit under the judgment of these verses. It's evangelistic. And then we see where we're going to go with that. Either we say, you know what, I'm good. Or we say, God, help me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And so look at verse 3 as we get ready to close. It's possible then to give all that you have to the poor and not love the poor at all. I mean, it's possible, again, some translations, that let your body burn at the stake and not love God at all. So not just it's not enough, like loving God enough, but you don't love him at all. You can die for your religion and not love God at all. You want to ask yourself, well, how in the world can that be? But, but we know. Do you remember the story I told this summer? I think I did. So a farmer loved his king. And so he, he was growing carrots, and there's this huge carrot, and he said, I want to bring it to the king. And so he goes to the king, my king, this is the greatest thing I've ever grown, and I want you to have it as a token of my love and my esteem for you. The king says, thank you. You have given me so much joy, and I want to give you twice as much land as you have now. That's my gift to you. I'm going to double it. And of course, the, far, the farmer went home happy, but a wealthy man who raised horses. He gets wind of this. So he thinks, you know, if I can go to the king with a horse, and if that old farmer, all he gave the king was a carrot, can you, can you imagine what the king will give me for a horse? So the nobleman brings the king a horse. He says, oh, king, this is the greatest horse I have. I want you to have it as a token of my esteem and my love for you. And so the king looks down because the king discerns the man's heart. He knows what he wants. And the king says, leave me. And the wealthy man said, what? It's a lot more than a carrot. And the king says, no, it is not. The farmer gave me the carrot. But you gave yourself the horse. I got nothing from you. You see, the farmer gave only out of love. He didn't give so he could get something he really wanted. The farmer loved the king. The nobleman loved himself. So think about God. Here is, here is one person just giving God carrots. They are broken. They are messed up. They are low performance. They fall down a lot. They read 1 Corinthians 13 and go, oh, no. Then here's a person who's extremely moral, incredibly disciplined, very good, goes to church all the time, gives money, helps the poor, and God is like, that means nothing because you're simply loving yourself. You're loving yourself by doing good simply to try and corner me to give me, to give you what you want. You're trying to corner me to give you what you want, and that is not love. So if we obey God so that he will answer our prayer, give us stuff, let us go into heaven, and we're afraid of hell, why would we think we have a personal relationship with God? Why? You see, it's not by accident. At the very end of this letter, you know what Paul says to them? 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for God, let him be accursed. And why does he say that at the very end? 
Because he's saying it through the whole letter. True love does not love the love and things a person gives them, but simply the person themselves. And when we stop loving people, when we stop loving people when they're unlovable, then we're not loving the way God describes here. And we are certainly not loving them the way Jesus loved us and loves us. So let, let the verse judge you. It's okay so that you can cry out to Jesus. Tell him. Cry out. Be honest. I did. Because he loves you. He loves you. One last quote, then one line from the Bible. The quote, sin is indeed always in us. Godly people feel it, but it is covered. It is covered. And the only question we should ask ourselves is, is it? Is it? Verse 7, love. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen. Thank you for your attention, and let's pray together, please. And, and just, this should always be understood, but may God bless your Sunday. If I don't tell you that personally, then it's a, it's a common thread. It's a day of rest, and we pray that we would enjoy it. Father, you are the living God, so you will hear us. You are the covenant God, so you will hear us. And you are the loving God, and so you will hear us. Remind us this morning that we have the glorious, perfect record of Jesus Christ himself, his obedience, his love, which we could never earn or achieve. And let us, let us behave in a way that has childlike trust in that truth. And, they, and then God made the beautiful love of Christ flow through us to you and to everyone else. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all of us, both now and forever. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.